Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I am Patch, here in the driver's seat tonight, and with me ready to jack some cars or at least some conversation about jacking some cars, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Oh, man. Oh, man. I'm not the criminal type, Patrick, so I don't know if you're going to have any success jacking cars with me, but I can definitely jack up some conversation. I will metaphorically do that because, confession, I never learned to drive a stick, so I would not be a good carjacker. Really? Unless, unless I'm jacking, like, Toyota Camrys or something like that. But no, I never, never learned to drive a stick. It's a regret in life that I think at some point I need to rectify, but at this point it might just be an embarrassing sticker I put on myself. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I grew up learning to drive on a stick, but I yeah. haven't dr- driven one in, you know, many decades now. And I, I don't mm-hmm. think most cars aren't made stick shift anymore, right? Manual, most cars are automatic. So Most cars are automatic, yeah. I mean, just like most cars have air conditioning. It's, I mean, having an automatic, <laughs> well, I'm like... saying having automatic transmission was kind of like a perk as opposed to a yeah. manual because, I mean, they were cheaper to make. But but yeah, I never learned to drive a standard because by the time I learned to drive, my dad had shifted over to uh, shifted. <laughs> nice. He had shifted over to uh, to automatics, and so I was like, "Cool, I'm gonna wreck a car that I don't have to, you know, grind the grind the gears for." Yeah, I mean, why would you want to work at driving any more than we are? How are you supposed to look at text messages while you're shifting? Come on, duh. I mean, come <laughs> on. Don't don't mess up my social life with a dick uh... shift, whatever. <laughs> This week we are chasing after one of our favorite heist movies, the Nicholas Cage, the Nicholas Cage led Gone in 60 Seconds. So, without further ado, let's run. I love that line. I had to just get it in there, and I don't know if I did it justice, but if I didn't, so be it. You did good. I, I will say this: I use that GIF all the time, and it's there's literally nothing about this movie that lets me down. But one thing that I noticed is that moment in my head. And I hadn't seen this in a couple decades, but like this moment in my head, that scene was like literally five to seven minutes long. And and it was like this huge build up and this, you know, let's ride. And like it was just I don't know, it was this big, massive event. And in the movie, it kind of is, is is much more fast. It just kind of happens like, you know, they they put on the music, they dance around for about 20 seconds. He says, let's ride. And they're out. It's well, not. that's the thing is you think that that let's run is connected to that moment, but it's actually not. It's connected to his first introduction when we uh, see him with the kids and okay. the go-karts, which I think okay. is even oh, more. Oh, yeah. That's, that one's awesome. It really is. And I would love to own a go-kart track where I can do something like that. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into our spoilerific portion of the podcast, we always start with one more takeaways. Aaron, what was yours? I'm changing mine on the fly because of the conversation you and I had before this episode okay. started. Look, my warrant takeaway is Eleanor. And that's because the thing that I cannot stop thinking about when I have this movie in my mind, when I watch this movie, is Eleanor. It's the name of the car, and it's the unicorn, and it's the idea of this incredibly powerful thing that is driving this character and his immense love for it. And especially so in this viewing of the film for me, because this is my first time watching this movie 
as a race car fan or as a racing fan. And so while mm-hmm. I'm never going to be a gearhead, Patrick, I'm never going to care about the specifics and details of how car mechanics, you know, do their stuff. And w- I, I don't care about that. Like we'd like the automatic versus standard. Just give me a car that drives. <laughs> but I do like pretty and I do like slick and fast and powerful even if I don't know all the details of what horsepower means necessarily and what that you know torque is going to affect this or that. But Eleanor is gorgeous. It is, it, she is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful car in this movie. And I absolutely love the way that the whole film is sort of built. The heist itself is sort of built around this escalating a thing to get to this one car and what's going to happen. And I feel like, it is such a wonderful payoff with that car. And so that's the thing that I'm always going to remember because someone personified a vehicle in a way that I think of that vehicle as a character and a critical character in this film. And so it's got to be Eleanor for me. Oh, it's great. And and the way she speaks along with all these other 50 cars that we see throughout the movie is my one word takeaway. And that's vroom. And I just, I mean, that's all it is, man. This is a movie about cars and stealing cars and driving cars and looking at cars and loving cars. Even if we're not gearheads, we can appreciate everything about this movie. If for no other reason than we just get a full display of these beautiful pieces of machinery and in such a dynamic that it's not just one type. I mean, I think the production value of this is pretty fantastic when you actually get to see for a few seconds, 50 cars that you would never get to see. My wife and I joke because when you live in a, in a state like Arkansas, which definitely has its money, I mean, we have the Tyson family and the, the Waltons, you're not going to see a lot of fancy cars where we live. And so when we get to see a Dodge, I wish a Dodge Viper was on this list, by the way. That's my favorite car in terms of sport cars, sports cars. But getting a chance to see these like all in like one movie is pretty phenomenal. It's just like seeing a car show only with cool people driving those cars. And it makes me sad when I see those cars get hurt a little bit or a lot in some cases, as we will probably talk about more in our official spoilery section. Here it is. You have been warned. We are now going to talk full spoilerific times. This was a movie that came out in 2000. Don't know if it's streaming anywhere. I own it. It's got rewatchability out the wazoo. Give yourself some love. Watch this movie. Come back and enjoy the conversation or enjoy it now, but with a lot of spoilers along the way. With that said, we'll get started. All right. So we're, we're kind of doing this new way of our show, kind of fast and loose, I guess. And we were thinking about what movie to cover. And as you and I were talking you said, why don't we do Gone in 60 Seconds? And so I wanted you, to... You brought it up. Did I, did you, I you, that? you brought up a couple of different films, and I was oh, I, came, right. I came back to you, and I was like, that's the one I want to do. Is that okay? So, so why did that one stand out to you to, to, to do a rewatch on? Well, for one thing, it is not streaming, by the way, if you're still listening and you haven't seen it for some reason. It, it's like on FUBU or some weird channel that starts with an F and has a couple four letters. But... Uh, it's worth just buying sight unseen, so if you're still listening, go buy it, whatever. Um, the reason is, I think anybody who listens to us regularly will probably understand this, but as I have become an F1 racing fan in the last year and a half or so, 
actually, I guess it's really just a year. I'm trying to make myself sound better. Uh, it's been about a year. Ever since I've discovered F1 and fallen completely in love with it, the desire to go back and rewatch racing films of a, a car films has been very high. And I've done that with quite a few days of thunder. I still have not gone back and rewatched, which, so that's on my short list of doing very soon. I'm not a huge NASCAR guy, but you know, that movie is still pretty freaking awesome, even though it's NASCAR cars. So it's worth going back to, but that's why I haven't prioritized it. And this one has been one I've been wanting to see again for a very long time. It lives in that place as a lot of films do for you and I, who are now in our early 40s, where we haven't necessarily seen it in a decade or more, but we watched it 15, 20 times when we were teenagers, easily, if not more than that. This is one of those that was on repeat. It was one of those that had a Nicolas Cage character in it that you just thought was absolutely the epitome of cool. And his girlfriend being Angelina Jolie, who was just so hot at the time, and I mean hot as in, like, as an actress, she was a hot commodity in the industry. She was the one that you wanted to have in your movie as your your sexy girl character. Um, and so it just, it all worked. And I was anxious to see how it held up. What did your kids think of it? I know you watched it with them this weekend, and... Uh... I think Ashlyn had said something about, oh, is this going to be another Nick Cage movie like Face Off? And you grinned and said, absolutely it is. So what did, <laughs> what did they take away from yeah. it? That's how it worked. Yeah, she, you know, Face Off in particular, I think sort of kind of has now become the film that is synonymous with Nick Cage for her. They've seen Con Air. I'm pretty sure they may have seen The Rock when we covered that one as well. And <laughs> unfortunately face off is the one they took away but because that's just the the craziest of crazy nick cage performances they liked it quite a bit and you know they're pretty boring unfortunately when it comes to movie reviews i'll be like did you like it and i'm like yeah i liked it or it was fine you know and that's when i know that they weren't but you really have to think about what did their faces look like when we were watching it were they engaged yeah. And they weren't checking their phones. They were having fun. They laughed. They smiled. They looked over me and kind of had moments of shock at certain points. She, Ashlyn summed it up as saying, this movie is basically love and found family through car theft. Who couldn't like that? And I was like, she was being, she's being completely, well, I agree. She was being completely facetious about it, but I thought it works perfectly. (laughs) Well, that sounds perfect coming from her. I, I mean, I can hear her saying that, so that's great. I, I love this movie for a number of reasons. The cars, obviously, as I mentioned before. But if there's one thing that's a close second to movies that I enjoy, the first one is movies that take place in high school. I, you know, Obviously, people know that. Second is a heist movie. I love a heist movie because there's so much about a heist movie that you can connect with. And it made me think, you know, where does this kind of hold up among other heist movies? And how did this work in comparison to those? And I wanted to kind of kick that over to you. Had you thought about that when you watched this? Like, hey, is this a definitive heist movie? Or is this kind of like, oh, this feels a little kind of B-roll-ish? Well, obviously, like you, I love heist films, too. Among my absolute favorite type of film. Uh, did you get a chance to watch The Vault, by the way? Or No, no. Okay. I Okay, so yeah, so true confession, I have to watch movies later at night when my wife goes to bed because she's not as interested in them. And if I know that I'm going to get sleepy, 
I will not turn on a movie I have not seen. I'm fine falling asleep to movies that I have seen. I've been falling asleep to old episodes of The Twilight Zone. I have no issue with that. But when it comes to new movies like The Vault, I am waiting until I'm like wide awake and have a couple hours to, to really devote time to, to to check that out. But I love the cast. I'm excited. Uh, Freddie Highmore is a favorite of mine. So I'm really excited to get into that. I'm excited for you to see. I absolutely loved it. And listeners, it is available to rent on Vudu and Amazon. I can't remember where else, but I paid for the rental, which is something I almost never do. Uh, and, and I loved it. If you like heist films, I think it's really great. There's some specific reasons, but I'm going to wait and because I don't want to talk about them until Patrick's seen the movie because I want him and I to have some cool conversation when he realizes what's going on. Okay, so heist films. This is interesting. I don't even remember how this actually came about, but I was Googling something while I was watching Gone in 60 Seconds, and I came upon this link, and it was the anatomy of a heist. And it makes perfect sense that people have done this. You know, what are the? I think I was Googling, like, what are the elements of a heist film or something? And this website is one that I clicked on, and it's charleskunken.com. I want to give him credit. Charles Kunken, that's K-U-N-K-E-N. And the gist is he decided to watch 40, 50 heist films and kind of grade them in a whole bunch of different categories and, and areas to determine what was the most consistent things that showed up in each and every one of these heist films. And so what I thought might be fun is to kind of go down this list of 16 elements of a heist film and see what we thought about Gone in 60 Seconds. Does it match up? And part of the reason I want to do this is because one of our listeners and members of our Feelin' Film Facebook group, Gabriel Green, who I famously have a pretty much opposite opinion of most movies as... He has a one-and-a-half-star review of this on Letterboxd, of this movie. And to my satisfaction, it has zero likes, thankfully. But his review was basically bold move, something like this, paraphrasing, bold move to have a heist film and, and have no elements of a heist film or something like that. And so I was like, huh, so people think this, some people must think this is missing and not hitting the mark as a heist film. So let's go through this list and let's see. We're going to do this kind of quick. We're not going to go into detail on each of these elements because we're going to talk through some of this stuff as we pr proceed in the, the episode. But the first one, Patrick, on Charles Kunkin's list, he says, A story about a single score. A proper heist film is a story about the preparation and execution of a single big score. Do you agree that this movie fits that bill? Yes. The fact that these car chases, car chases, carjackings all have to take place in one night, that's the big score. You could argue that it's Eleanor, which I think is part of it, but Eleanor was not the centerpiece. She was the icing on the cake. She was the unicorn as part of this big heist of 50 cars, or 50 cars, as our, as our bad guy likes to say <laughs> in this movie. 49 cars is not 50 cars. But no, I think it's absolutely the, the one big thing in, the, okay. in this one. I completely agree. It is one night, it is 50 cars, but it is one event, it is one goal to succeed, and, and in one delivery, as he says. So I agree. We're going to give that one a yes. Number two, the perpetrator is the hero. Crime stories are about cops. Heists are about thieves. The protagonist must be the one pulling off the job. I love that delineation. Crime stories are about cops. Heists are about thieves. I think that's great. Okay. Yeah. And absolutely. No brainer, right? Yeah, no brainer there. Because Memphis is clearly not a cop. 
Yes. Number three, the hero already wants to steal things. He says, remember how we said it's about the how and not the why? Trying to quickly jam in the whole backstory of why our hero goes from civilian to thief at the beginning of the film doesn't really work. It often comes off cheesy and leads to uh, a poor caper. So I would say essentially yes. So he's a retired thief yeah. in this movie. But while we get his backstory and how he retired revealed, it really is that he already wants to steal things. And if we're honest, the movie starts off with Kip. And and it, this is Kip's problem, and Kip is definitely stealing things in the yeah. here and now. So yeah. I would say yes that this meets that criteria. I'd call that a loose yes. I think it's a I, I won't say it's a forced yes in that he's forced back into this, but he is he is not fighting against it. Like he completely knows how to do these things, and it's not like he's going, oh, should I or shouldn't I? No, he's like I got to do this, and he does it. All right, number four, the heist must be a success. He writes, we want victory for our heroes. Justice is for villains. So, obviously, yes. The heist is a success, right? Do we, we... Well, so if a success means that Kip survives, yes, it is. If it means that he stole 50 cars, I'm going to go with Kalitri on here. I was like, 49 and a half cars is not 50 cars. I mean, I would feel a little cheated if you bring a Shelby to me that has been completely decimated and call that a car. So in terms of getting Kip off the hook, yes, absolutely it is. But in terms of giving me 50 cars, no. But he brings the cars. The thing is he gets, he, they succeed in actually yeah. stealing the cars. Okay. Right. Well, I, I'll give you that. I'll, I'll say a half yes on that then. Okay. We're giving it a full yes because I'm not doing five. <laughs> We're rounding up. Oh. All right. <laughs> The hero gets the want, number five, the hero gets the want and the need. I love this one. He says, in the classic rules of drama, in the end of a story, in, in the end of a story, the hero must sacrifice the thing they want in order to gain the thing they need. I think that this is great. Charles, at the very end of this little blurb where he's explaining this bullet, he says, master thieves get the money and the girl. To me... That sums it up right there. Sway gets in the car at the end of the, the movie, right? He gets the want, which is successfully getting his brother out of this situation, and he gets the need. Or I guess that's the need. Sorry. And he gets the want, which is a better life, a new family. He's still out of the game. He's got his girl back. Like, it, he gets everything in the end. So I say yes. Yeah, that's a yes for me, too. I think you could argue that he doesn't get the cash because Kalitra doesn't give it to him, but he gets the Shelby. The Shelby is what he wanted. He could care I less do, about yeah. the money. He, that's yeah. true. The Shelby and, yeah, and, and, and Sway. His own Eleanor. That yeah. Definitely, definitely needs some work, though. Yeah. Well, give him two weeks. You know, I think if you combine – yeah, if, if you get that over into Dom's garage. I was getting ready to say drive it over to Toretto's. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Uh, number six, a twist ending. Charles writes, I don't know how to technically describe what a twist is other than to say it leaves you saying, holy crap. The reason we consume stories is to experience an ending that is, quote, surprising yet inevitable. I would say that the end of the way that this plays out with Detective Castlebeck qualifies this as somewhat of a twist ending enough to, to satisfy this element. 
Yeah, I think for me, if there's I, it, because I have a rewatch brain, what you know, going through this, it doesn't surprise me as much. I think maybe the first time I saw that, and so I, I would say it's a soft yes for me. So we can call it a yes. He also writes one of he, he gives two different ways that it can be executed. He says number one, part of the hero's plan has to be hidden from the audience, or and he says that number two is more appropriate in action movies like we just watched. We know the plan, but the hero has to improvise. That definitely happens. Like oh, that's yeah, for sure. inevitable in most yeah. of these films like he's writing. Okay. Um, number seven, recruitment of the ensemble. <laughs> Does this film have a crew up? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And double yes. yes. <laughs> double. Yeah, actually correct. <laughs> double the trouble in this. Yes. Number eight, the ensemble has interesting eclectic expertise. Uh, he sure. says, Argue. yeah, re okay, regarding said ensemble, merely having a group of guys or gals willing to shoot up a bank does not qualify. See, quote, point break. <laughs> he said the execution of the score needs <laughs> needs to be dependent upon the combination of a unique set of talents. We'll get into that one a little more when we get to characters, but yes, absolutely. Hey, you got to eat, right? Everybody's yeah. Gotta eat. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Uh, number nine, collection of heist tools are scattered throughout the plot. And he says, making it back to surprising yet inevitable, we have to be shown bits and pieces throughout the story that will enable the heist at the end. Absolutely. I mean, they do recon. We see them scouting each of the cars and trying to figure out the various ways. It's different for each car how they're going to steal it. And so yeah. we do see that. Well, and then the impro impro improvisation with the Mercedes. I mean, that was, that's another thing. Yeah. Yep. Number 10, the target is personified. Well, we just talked about that. And obviously Eleanor <laughs> by itself <laughs> yeah. qualifies for If you didn't need the other 49 cars. <laughs> right. You, yeah. You get it with Eleanor. Number 11, the cat is personified. This is a very kind of lengthy explanation for the way that this one is written. What this one in this point boils down to is the cat and the mouse is someone chasing at some point the cat who is trying to create wait the cat and the mouse is there a cat chasing the mouse right who is trying to do the heist and some films and he gives the example of logan lucky where they're really just working against the elements of the track there's nobody trying to stop them until really late in the film but in this one he says and then he says really the classic example of this is like heat he even says, when all those fails, feel free to include a scene of Pacino and De Niro having coffee. That's that's what we're talking about. We absolutely get that in this film. Oh, yeah. In the diner, when, you know, Memphis walks out and Castlebeck and uh, Drykoff have shown up because somebody mm -hmm. called them. I absolutely love that scene, by the way, when they first they are like, oh, Memphis, you're back in town. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Number 12, iconic scenes. Uh, without question. <laughs> no doubt on that one. No, one of them is in our graphic for this episode with yes. Eleanor jumping <laughs> on a bridge. <laughs> and also one of the iconic moments for me is really when that wrecking ball hits the car. That was one of the moments the, the kids gave me the like wide open jaw, like, oh my gosh. And then the, <laughs> I loved him at the Oliphant, man, in this. His dryness is so perfect, but he gets out of the car and he walks over to him. And it's like, hey, are you all right? Do you need to go to the hospital? You just went through a wall. <laughs> and then Ashlyn's like, you don't think he knows that? So I say yes, obviously iconic moments. 
number 13, a clever and interesting heist sequence. Undeniably, many of yeah. them, because there's many different cars. Number 14, a good enough B-plot. This is an interesting one. So do we consider this to have a different and, and easily executed B-plot? And I think... It's it's hard because so that it, the the A plot and the B plot are kind of mixed together in this film, where the heist Eleanor is part of the heist. You'd almost say like Eleanor is sort of the B plot, um, but Eleanor is mixed into the A plot <laughs> in a way that is specific to it. Maybe it's it's really not him trying to get sway because that's not something that is intentionally being worked toward. It's just kind of something that naturally happens because they mm-hmm. spend some time together or whatever. Yeah. So. I don't know that there's really a B plot in this. Well, yeah, I don't think there is either. You could argue that it's resolution, the theme of resolution, but I don't think it's a plot. I mean, it's a theme, obviously, because there's definitely resolution with him and and Sway, him and his brother uh, rectifying those kinds of relationships. But I don't think that's a B plot. So I don't think this has that as much. Okay, I don't either. I'm going to say, and to make sure this is not a shutout, we're going to give that a no. All right, number 15, characters we love. For me, undeniably, a yes. yes. Okay. Yes. And last but not least, number 16 is part of the plan hidden from the audience. And he says, this is an extra note I felt compelled to add on top of convention number six, the twist ending. I could say a lot, but I'll sum it up like this. We like heists for the same reason we like magicians. But in the end, we get to see how they made their trick. So do we know how they're going to succeed the whole time, or do they do something that shockingly surprises us in the end um, that we were not aware of in leading up to the film? And I, I'd say probably not. I, I don't believe there was anything surprising to the audience about this. I don't think there was anything surprising as far as like a reveal of something that we didn't know, but I do think that you could slide in a maybe with a lot of the improv- improvisation. There were several moments of things that came up that kind of interfered with the heist, like the shooting or the going into the uh, the impound yard for the Mercedes, but those could probably just be chalked up as, little conflict points throughout the plot. I don't think those were, they weren't planned. So I wouldn't call those necessarily. They'd be more improvisation than they would be like hidden plans. That's what I'm thinking. So I'm going to say say no, I'm going to say no. So, so that gives us a score of 14 yeses to no's of two no's. So clearly Gabriel green, if you are listening to this episode, this is a heist movie. So get off me is all I'm going to say. That's a fantastic list. And what a great way to go through it. I now want to have that list on hand when I walk through the uh, the Furious movies or Ocean's Eleven and just see kind of. So would it be, a, is it kind of like a 51 to 49 vote? Like if it's nine to seven, it's a heist movie. But if it's eight to eight, it's a toss up. Do you have to kind of have a tiebreaker? What? How would we go with that, do you think? I mean, I think that the beauty of it is, you know, his system is not perfect for everyone. And and actually, if you go look at it, again, charleskunkin.com, the graphic of the Google Doc that he used when watching him is, it as a stats nerd, yes, Patrick, I was compelled. It has like 
um, a matrix with little yeses and nos and you know drop downs where he was ch- tracking them as he was watching each film and I, it was really I was like I need to do this because <laughs> it was kind of along the lines of what I wanted to do with spy movies and other genres as well. Uh, I think that it's subjective, right? It's whatever the one of one or two of these elements is going to be more important to you than it is to somebody else. So for you, example, I know that the crew up is is probably the most important thing to you. Yeah. Um, if not, okay. it's at least top two or three. Yeah. So I know that. Uh, for me, I know that you know it's up there for me too in the top two or three. But I also absolutely need to see the heist be something that is unique and like interesting and like shown to me, like how they're going to play it out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those elements are going to elevate something over some of these lesser ones. Like there are things on this list that I agree are are elements of the majority of heist films, but they're not, I'm not going to care like the ones that this film we we may mark does know. I don't care if those are missing. So it's really going to be a matter of like, which ones are there versus which ones aren't if I'm coming down to some sort of tiebreaker. Oh, for sure. I mean, if it doesn't have a crew up, it's not a heist movie. That's the thing. Yeah. You can't have 15 of these things and no crew up and be a heist movie. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) It's, you know, if it has Tom Cruise, maybe it's a heist movie. I think that Tom Cruise seems to be in most heist movies, (laughs) at least in my book. Well, I think the mission impossible movies is what I'm thinking of, but you know, I, I think when we talk about the crew up, one of the most important things for me is that dynamic. You can't just have a bunch of dudes or a bunch of ladies who are all doing the same thing. They all have to have some kind of dynamic. And look, this movie has it. And I think what this movie adds to the crew up is the fact that we have an old and a young dynamic. The movie starts with these young whippersnappers. You know, I'm speaking as an old person at this point. I don't like speaking as an old person, but you have these young guys who are doing their own thing. I mean, look, the movie starts with Kip completely unfazed to throw a brick into a car dealership and rip off a Porsche. No problem. It's fine. Like, that's not subtle. And what we find out later is there are better ways to do this. But what I loved about this movie is the fact that they're included in it. And they provide not only comic relief, but a great contrast to some of the the old school ways of doing things. And I love seeing how they react to certain things. Like at, at the very beginning, you got uh you got uh, Scott Kahn, that's Tumblr, you know, doing his thing and he's making some kind of crude comment about some self-pleasing act and <laughs> And you got, you got, um, oh, I forget his name now because there's so many great names in here, but it's, uh, I think it's, is it Will Patton? Atley? Is it? I can't remember. Yeah, Will Patton. Yeah, Atley. Atley, yes. Atley goes, I'm entertaining school children here. What, you know, what's going on here? I mean, he's just like, just out of his element. It's like, why, why, why am I involved with these people? And then to see them connect, kind of force their way into this event after, after Memphis has decided, you know, he's going to do this, <laughs> they start kind of listing, here's what we can bring to the table. And then you've got, um, you've got everybody that's good at something except Freb, who he orders pizza. pizza. He orders pizza. And he's like, you got to eat, man. He reminds me like of a, a young version of, uh, of who is it? Um, of, of our man from, um, from Point Break. You know, I feel like that's yeah. like, 
an early version of of him and it's just it's so much fun to watch because in the end they're all good i mean you need all those people to steal that many cars you have to have at least one person behind the wheel of a car to steal 50 of them and if you only had like four guys or four people it's going to take you twice as long to steal 50 cars as opposed to having like seven or eight i also love the fact that they do car trivia as they're getting ready to steal or they're or they're doing recon i I love that it's just so great because it shows that they all love cars not necessarily the act of stealing although that's a perk but they love cars they're all loving like tv shows and being able to just call attention to all that stuff it's just really a lot of fun well that's the difference right in something that i think allows you to root for characters like this when they're doing a heist is they do they love what they're doing it's not that they're in it just to make money like they legitimately just have a love of these things and in their world like they're not going to ever get their hands on these cars because they're everyday people they're not going to be able to drive a lamborghini or a porsche or whatever they're not gonna be able to just go buy that by working at a go-kart place and so in a sense, they're getting to experience these incredibly high-end vehicles, and that is a high for them. Like, it's not – for most of them. Some of them seem like they genuinely probably are just there for the fun of the crime. But for the most part, yeah, they do truly love the cars. It does have – it really has the same vibe as a Fast and Furious, like right down to a family barbecue at the end that I had forgotten was there, and I was like, Wow. Did any of them stand out to you as far as like favorites or do you connect? Like if you said, I want to be X, um, I think we've done this before with characters, like who would you be and who could you be? Like that kind of thing. Okay. Well, the fact that Otto is in both this Robert Duvall and in Days of Thunder is so cool. I always love his character being like this mentor to different racers or different, you know, car people in ways and i'm always like waiting for him to say rubbin's that rubbin's racing in this movie but of course he's not um so that's cool i was shocked that scott con was in this movie i'd totally forgotten about that anytime i see tweeter show up in a movie it's fun and he is still tweeter to me he, from he'll Mars. always be tweeter always <laughs> he'll be always tweeter. be tweeter um i love the way that mirror man sort of grows throughout the film his back and forth dialogue with sphinx cracks me up and oh, gosh getting called ghetto smurf um his his attempt to be like a pimp at the end of the movie when they're trying to break into the police impound oh gosh with the with the doll yes with the doll it's so so stupid (laughs) so he really just steals the show as far as i i'm concerned i think pairing him with sphinx was such an incredible choice to put those two characters together um so I, i mean i like a lot of them obviously Memphis. I mean, what can you say? Like, this is one of my favorite Nicolas Cage roles. It's one of my favorite Angelina Jolie roles. She's not in it a ton. She doesn't have a ton to do, but I just think that she fits this group like a glove and like they need this character to kind of make it's to make this family whole. She is the Letty of this crew in so many ways, right? And it really just fits. Before I get to my character, who I am, Master P, by the way, is in this movie. And I was like, wait a second, who is this guy playing Johnny B? And so I Googled it because I'd forgotten. And it's Master P. And so it's kind of funny, you know, that like Nicolas Cage makes Master P say, uh. But yeah, right down to the, um, it feels like a Johnny Tran subplot to this movie. And maybe that's a B. It's kind of like a side plot, you know. 
Um, again, with a Fast and the Furious reference, but I think that the characters in this are key. They're all interesting. They all get something to do at some point or another. They all have a role to play in the ultimate outcome of this story. Nobody is just there, even Freb. And this is where I'll tell you, I don't want to admit it, but I think that if I was a character, it would probably be Freb. Because (laughs) the truth is, I'm way too straight and narrow to be part of this crew. I am too scared to put myself on any sort of the line like this. And so if I was ever thrust into this position to save a loved one, I would likely just be the guy who orders pizza or... The other big thing that he does, he steals a car to try and be cool because it was just there. He didn't have to put any work into it, and it ends up being full of heroin and almost costing them, right? From, so from Chinatown, Why because do you do that? because do you do he's that? trying to like impress these talented thieving friends he has, but he didn't have to put anything into it. He just walked into this situation. That would be me. I think the reality is because I'm such a rule follower that I'd probably be closer to Detective Drykoff, uh, Timothy Oliphant's character, than anybody else. Did you yeah. have somebody? I, You know, first of all, let me just say that the names of these characters make me happy. I don't think Memphis's name is said enough. I think that when you have Castlebeck talking to him, it's always Randall Raines, Randall Raines. I'm like, call him Memphis? Because that's a cooler name. Memphis is not used enough. But when you've got, like, Kips, Way, Mirror Man, Atlee, Otto, Sphinx. I mean, they're all just really, it's a great blend of what I would call common names and nicknames. And honestly, Aaron, I think they all fit the both the actors and the characters. Like Freb. Freb. He looks like a Freb, right? He is not, he's not a Tumblr, which Scott Kahn is a Tumblr. I mean, he's definitely a Tumblr. And Toby is a Toby. Like, Toby seems like a a nerdy guy, and that's what he does. That's who I would relate to. Toby would be, that's who I would be. I would be Toby. I'd be the guy behind the computer trying to hack into the DMV, doing my thing, and kind of spouting like I know something, but I kind of don't. You know, I like, I know enough to have a little bit of the cool points, but not enough to actually lead a crew, and I would end up getting shot. I mean, that's what would happen. I would end up getting shot. I'd be looking at a party where we were stealing a car and I would get caught by the pretty girl who calls the cops on me. That's what would happen. But I think the whole crew feels like a, a family by the end of the movie. They all feel like they matter in some way, shape or form. They don't all get screen time. And I think this is something that could be a critique because when we talk about the fast and the furious, we feel like everybody's got a role. Everybody feels like they have some kind of significance as part of that family which I think is what drives that franchise. This doesn't have that as much, but I think what it does have is enough of a balance of young and old, experienced and inexperienced, mentor-mentee, opposite dynamics, that it makes them fun to interact with. It makes them fun to watch. And you mentioned that, Mirror Man and Sphinx. You've got this guy who doesn't talk against this guy who doesn't shut up. And it's like... You either feel like you're one of those two guys when they interact, like, oh my gosh, can you just stop talking? Or, oh my gosh, is he gonna is he gonna hit him? Is he gonna kill him? <laughs> and I just think it's great. I think it's it's so much fun to watch them 
interact. And it's even more fun to watch how specifically Memphis and his old crew interact with um, with Castleback and Drycock. You know, that's something that this movie has, that any good heist movie has, is someone working against this crew to achieve their goal. And then we have those, that buddy cop duo. Did you like their dynamic and how they interacted with each other? And what did you think about their strength in terms of putting them against Memphis and his crew? Well, this is one of my favorite parts of this film, and I think it's what makes it special, to be honest, is those two. So they are buddy cop pair, but they have this very serious demeanor about them instead of a typical, like, bumbling idiot cops who are trying to catch the thief. That's what I really love. So I think that they work really great together. I think that their banter and their dialogue is freaking awesome. Timothy Oliphant and Delroy Lindo, just just such p- perfect casting for these two guys. And they are formidable opponents. That is, I think, critical because they have the same knowledge as the car thieves. Like, it's shown to us multiple times in the film where, you know, Detective Castlebeck comes in and, like, he understands what the Cadillac is. He can talk cars just like these guys. It shows you that it's kind of like a Paul Walker, you know, joining the crew in Fast and Furious where he is just as into the culture. And so he has the same sort of understanding of the vehicles and the same passion, but he's approaching it from a different place and doing a different job in the realm of these cars. And so it makes them like truly something that the crew has to be aware of and has to get around. They're not just in the background, like they are legitimately an obstacle at multiple times in the film. And so I think that is great. And, you know, ultimately just the the backstory between them, the way that Castlebeck, you know, when he first sees Memphis and he says, I'll catch you later. That's one of my favorite lines. I freaking love the like, oh, of that the line. Duality, yeah. The, the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's great, and then man. the way that Memphis saves him in the end, you know, and makes that choice. You again, that because of that, it helps you to root for that, quote, bad guy, the thief, because you can see it's not about hurting people theoretically, <laughs> you know, like he's hurting them financially because he's stealing their cars. But like he doesn't want this guy to get killed, even though he is a detective who has been trying to catch him because he cares about people. He, he doesn't want to just see needless loss of life for no reason. That's not what he's about. And and I love it. I love the way that these guys just talk throughout the movie, the way that their, you know, attempts to surveillance go wrong and how Memphis, you know, picks up on that. And I, I think that it wouldn't be anywhere near the same film without these guys in it. it you know, it feels almost like, bad boys-esque in in some ways like like a will smith and martin lawrence with a little less comedy are trailing nicholas cage and his crew um so I, I love them yeah i do too and i think that they serve as the antagonist to memphis and his crew there's this one of the one of the moments that stands out to me is when they do the whole good cop bad cop and i feel like what timothy oliphant brings to the table is that he performs such a crappy bad cop like he feels like he's intimidating to himself. Like he he senses that he's bringing it, but he's really not. Only when he has Castlebeck next to him, and there are a couple of times when he gets 
his foot stuck right in his mouth is when he tries to intimidate Memphis and he says, yeah, you don't want to mess with, uh, you know, Castlebeck's wife. And at the end of the conversation, Castlebeck goes, don't ever talk about my wife again. And it's like he goes, wow, I just completely blew that one. Same in a couple other scenes when they're trying to shake down one of the one of the narcs. I feel like if he were by himself, he would completely blow it and he needs Castlebeck to do it. But that's what makes their dynamic so great is they're fun to be around. And the other thing I like, Aaron, is the fact that they don't feel like you want them to get their comeuppance. Like you want Memphis to win. Absolutely. But you don't want them to lose. Like that's what I think is pretty great about any heist movie is that the bad guys aren't the cops necessarily. They are sort of the thorn in the side of the protagonist. And they're just trying to evade and try not to hurt. And I think that kind of brings me to my next thought, which is this this villain that we have in the form, not really a villain, but I guess the guy that sort of sparks this whole thing in the form of... Oh, he's Raymond a villain. Khalid. He's Was a he? villain. It's okay well, to say a villain. <laughs> okay, but, but I mean, when you look at Raymond Kalitri, I think isolated, he's an interesting guy. He's got a great accent. He has this kind of obsession with wood. And he has kind of an intimidation to him that doesn't get as fleshed out as I would like. And I kind of feel like he's Carter Verone amped up a little bit, you know, from Too Fast, Too Furious. And I feel like he's a serviceable villain. I think he gets the job started. And I think getting him his comeuppance is a great way to kind of book in that. But apart from that, I don't know that he's necessarily like this looming character that I'm thinking about throughout the course of the, of the heist. I'm really more focused on, of course, Memphis and his crew, but also the two cops. And I don't think that's bad necessarily. I don't think he's sticking out like he's not relevant. I think you need him. Could you make Kip's issue connected to the cops? Maybe. But for me, I think he was fun to have, but, kind of forgettable oh man wow oh completely different completely okay. different side so i love him i think he's okay. a fantastic villain right. i it's uh it's christopher eccleston first of all so okay. uh, he you know ultimately has become one of the doctors in doctor who and that is pretty much what he's known for now but i had forgotten he who he was in this movie that it was you know mainly because he's hair and um but I, I love him i feel like he is like such a great dialogue chewing dirty rotten jerk he's this uppity european asshole essentially who got kicked out of europe he he says you know got kicked out of you know france and and you're and england his home country i'm guessing so i've got to be stuck in this crap hole of america stealing cars because it's the only place i can operate now and he just is – he thinks he's too cool to be here, and he's just so ridiculous. His obsession with wood is a beautiful, like, just dumb thing for a person who is fascinated with stealing metal things to be into. And I love that. I think that it's hilarious because it, it really – it hammers home. Like, it's not about the cars to him. He is such a great dichotomy, whereas Detectives Drykoff and Castlebeck – share that passion for vehicles. This guy doesn't give a crap about the cars. He cares about the money. That's it. 100%. He doesn't, it's, it's metal, like junk 
to him. He doesn't think metal is important. And so it's all about money. It's just a means to get rich. Whereas these guys, it matters to them and it means something. And so it's probably escalated for me because I just watched a new film that came out this weekend called Those Who Wish Me Dead. It's the newest Taylor Sheridan film who I absolutely love, starring Angelina Jolie, believe it or not. And it's on HBO Max. If you want to check it out, I was disappointed in it. But the point of it is the villains in that film are played by Aiden Gillen and Nicholas Holt. Aiden Gillen plays Littlefinger in the Game of Thrones series, and I know you haven't watched it, but like the the thing to know is that these two guys are so capable of playing insanely like energetic and interesting, layered, compelling and entertaining villains, and in this movie they are cold, flat, boring, no depth, no backstory. They just kind of float on one level all the way through the movie. They're the most – you could take them out and put anybody else in there. And I'm like, why did you put these two awesome actors in this movie to have them do nothing, right? To make them complete cookie cutter replaceable with any other villain. And to me, I want the villain to not be like that. I want the villain to give me some of that pizzazz and that flair. And for me, Raymond Kalitri actually gives me a little bit of like Hans Gruber uh, to him. And I think that that's freaking awesome. And – Maybe the only scene that I think is kind of silly in this movie is him falling. <laughs> also Hans Gruber-esque because the CGI is really bad. Other than that, like I think everything in this movie is perfect. But yeah, I think he's great, man. So for, he's he's an actual like enhancement to it for me. Because again, like I mentioned with the detectives being formidable foes to them as an obstacle to getting the heist done, I believe that Raymond Kalitri is capable of killing them. And the movie sells me on that with... The way that it shows him, the the way that he, you know, treats the Reigns brothers when he has them in this, like, compactor and he is just cold and, like, very hardcore. And also the way that, you know, uh, Atlee is very clear, like, we're going to have to get Kip out of here if it needs to be. We're going to have to run. Like, we can't fight this guy. He will kill us. Um, and so I thought that those were just big-time pluses for me in, in really – escalating the importance of and the danger of the heist for the crew at the same time. Yeah, you make a great point that when you look at the dichotomy of how he feels about the things that are being stolen versus how Memphis and even the cops do, that definitely adds to his character. I think for me, it may have just bloated the movie too much if we'd gotten more of him, which I would want. I think as a character, Raymond Kalitri has some interesting things about him. I, I like the fact that he's obsessed with wood and that dichotomy of really only wanting money from the from the sale of these cars. It's just about the cars and about what they can get him. But it's it's also one of those things where his character was interesting enough, but I didn't I didn't want more of him. But I needed more of him in order to make him kind of stand out. It's like, yeah, he's really good. He was definitely serviceable. And I think that his torture methods were pretty top notch. I mean, the fact that it really does amplify the fact that he just doesn't care about cars. He cares more about intimidation, intimidation through what he can do, what he can get other people to do. And both of those scenes where you have oh, Eleanor being crushed, just it crushes me. But I love the fact that. He he's very scientific about that. Like he the the scenes that he chews up, he does so as like a data expert almost. Like when he talks about 
when he's crushing about trying to crush Kip, he talks about how long it takes a car to be crushed. You know, it takes this many pounds of thrust to, to crush a car. And, and, and there's that moment that I think worked for me where I didn't expect Kip to die necessarily, but man, he was getting close. And so finally, you know, Memphis is like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And I love the dialogue where he goes, you got three choices. And he just riddles off those three choices. And it's just, so in terms of being I love that scene. hilarious and intimidating, <laughs> I think that's it. Like I never felt Raymond Calitri's presence over the over the crew. And I don't think that was the the point. But I did like the fact that his presence was there. I like the fact that, you know what? <laughs> if they don't pull this off, they got another problem to deal with. It's not just gonna be the cops. But I also love the fact that we didn't have to spend a lot of time with it, that he was the beginning and the end, and that they had to solve that problem. Even if they got all 50 cars to the lot or to the, to the crates, he was still going to be there. And honestly, Aaron, I don't think he was going to come through on his deal anyway. I, I don't think he was a man of his word. I think he would have found a way to make it a problem. Even if the, even if Eleanor had been brought in 15 minutes later, completely pristine. Oh, he would have 100%. Yeah. He was gonna, yeah. Yeah. He was going to get the cars, keep the money and then kill the Reigns brothers. And so seeing him get his comeuppance, I think was pretty fantastic. All right, it is connecting point time unless you have anything else you want to go through. You can tell me when you're off mute. That would be better. Well, I still want to talk about the heist even when I'm off mute. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk about it with myself or we can talk about it together. Uh, the the heist itself, I think we kind of tend to – we don't even think about talking about it because it's not – but it, the yeah. I love it. So the one thing – not the one thing. There's so many things I like about this. The The lead up to the heist is incredible in this film. The way in which they surveil the cars. Uh, it's like any great heist movie. You're trying to figure out how you're going to do the break in or how you're going to get into the building, um, how you're going to get such and such out, etc. And all of these different things with figuring out the keys for the Mercedes or the the different scanner frequencies for a garage door for some of them. Uh, the when uh, Memphis goes into the car dealership and he's like, you know, no, oh, you know, I don't want, I would be a connoisseur if I had this other car. He's like, oh, what else have you got in the garage, right? The twist of having to go to the police impound and to get the Mercedes out of there because the dog ate the keys and all of them, or because they're, the Mercedes were burned and stuff. That, the montage, when they're first stealing the, the first group of cars, I, I, would be remiss if we didn't talk about that. There is a carjacking montage, Patrick, in this movie. Um, I love that. I love the needle drops in this film. I think they're great from rock to kind of alternative to the rap sequences. And so, you know, all these different car stealing bits and car talk while they're doing it. Like those parts of this film are exciting. And then ultimately the Eleanor heist for me, I love how long it is. It, this thing builds up to a point, and then the heist is like the last 20, 25 minutes, it feels like. And specifically the Eleanor heist, this car chase is up there with me among my favorite in all of cinematic history because it feels raw and real. Like, it feels truly dangerous. There's a little bit of pizzazz and flair to the Fast and the Furious street racing and of course later in the series patrick to where i don't think that they're always necessarily like cops don't exist in so many movies where car chases are happening or there's one cop 
chasing a car and that's it. It's like one detective car and a cop and they're racing all throughout these streets. That's not how it would go down. This movie feels like Grand Theft Auto where he is winging through alleys and trying to make corner turns left and right and they're actually he's struggling to get this done. It's not like perfect crazy bouncing off a wall stuff. He's precision driving carefully and he's having to make adjustments as he goes as he goes through an actual major metropolitan area in a city and then he has to go off-road and do these different things like going under the tunnel and as he does this we go from one detective chasing him to a few different cops to a whole train of cop cars behind him and a helicopter and it reminds me of Grand Theft Auto, where you're playing the game and your star rating is going up, up, up the more crime and the longer you run from the cops. And then you just keep coming and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I love, love, love that. I love him. I, I've forgotten that Eleanor had nitrous. I didn't remember that. And so when he hits that nitrous and she bursts into and you get that like radio call from the helicopter and he's like 140, 150, 160, he's gone. I just I think that is so sick. You get the bridge jump, right? You get driving through the docks like crazy and that that barrel um that wrecking ball hitting the cop car to knock one into the detectives and you know get them off of the track. So I just I think the car chase and the heist itself in this film matches the music and the general energy of this movie. It starts we talked about this at the beginning of our episode. It starts with the song Flowers by Moby. Right, the green Sally up, green Sally down, lift and squad gotta tear the ground. Like, that gets you in the mood for what you're gonna see. And this has, it's Jerry Bruckheimer produced this. And in all the movies between like the late 80s and the early aughts of Jerry Bruckheimer, Top Gun, The Rock, Con Air, like all of these films, they have this similar like energy. Armageddon, they get in, they hit you, and they just keep pounding you with energy and emotional, manipulative emotional beats that I absolutely think are great. I think movies are supposed to manipulate you emotionally. <laughs> like, that's, you're trying to entertain you, dang it! Like, that's the point. And, and it does that for me from literal stop to finish, man. I do not have a beat or a moment in this movie in which my attention span drops for one second because I am so much enjoying myself. And that's a credit to the way that the heist plays. I mean, like you said, they, it starts with them stealing a Porsche driving it through the glass of the dealership and then going on a chase and then do another Fast and Furious moment, racing a dude and his girlfriend in their car. (laughs) And I love, by the way, the guy that's pulled over and and he's like, the guy that's getting arrested on the side of the road from that cop. And he's like nodding like, oh yeah, that's, and then he, and then he like straightens up like, oh my bad. Like, I'm not, I'm not really excited about that. So anyway, I just, I had to like give this some love for that. Yeah. And, and I guess one other quick element, I know I'm just rambling, and then no, no, please, cool. Sway and Memphis and their love scene in this movie, I think it is so brilliantly done. It reminds me, again, to call back to this era of films that I love and this type of movie, this Jerry Bruckheimer formula, the moment with um, Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler in Armageddon. It's a, it's, a sex, it's a version of a sex scene. It's a romantic scene where they pull in and they're watching this couple up in the window and they start to have sex and so they have to wait, right? They can't steal that car. And so it ends up with them making out in the car that they're in 
and and having this car detail parts talk that like pillow talk that is it's hilarious to the viewer because no one would do that but we understand that to these characters they're speaking each other's language right it's so sexy but it's also funny and also so sweet and so specific to those characters that you can't help but think of how important it is to them and what it means to them while you're also laughing at the fact that it's happening and so it reminds me of the animal cracker moment like it builds up an emotional moment, but you kind of laugh about how silly it is. But you also, in reality, could see yourself if you were these characters, you might do the same thing. So I, I love the way that that's integrated. And it's not sexy. It's that they don't have to get naked and actually have sex for it to like convey their desire to be in a relationship together, right? And I just I think that that is so wonderfully done in this movie as well. So those are my extra bits <laughs> that are things that I didn't get to say yet. No, I'm glad you did. And I, I, I want to call back to the, to the heist itself. I think those pockets of dialogue that take place when you got these pairings that happen, the, the Humvee scene where you have Sphinx and Mirror Man in the car and Mirror Man's like, I got something for you. You know, he throws in some hip hop and he's like, yeah, this is better than your cracker music you listen to. And he's getting, and then he gets hit by a, by a snake. And he's like, Oh, there's a snake in here. Why are they call it a snake? And, and the whole time, Sphinx is just like driving. He's like, cool. And it's what's great about Sphinx is that he does not show any emotion. And that he just, it's like, this is Tuesday for him, you know, setting cars on fire, knocking police cars off the, off the road in a, you know, in a circular ramp down. And then the great beat at the end of that scene is fantastic where he's just like, to the uh to the parking meters like yep i'm checking out and then they leave you know like no problem so i love funny. i love those pockets of of dialogue and interaction with you know the old and the young just trying to figure it all out same thing that you were saying with with memphis and sway you know waiting on that couple to to get down and dirty before they can steal the car the other thing i liked is the way in which we saw these cars being stolen i love of course the highlights of all the cars getting to see them and seeing Seeing Otto, you know, just, you know, knocking him off, you know, we've got Eleanor, we got Barbara, we got Deborah, you know, all those types of things. But I think seeing how they steal them, it's not just your standard, oh, you just take a, you know, take a, a Jimmy wrench and you stick it in the window and you pull it up. Sometimes they have to unscrew a a tail light to stick a screwdriver in there and and start something. I mean, it's like all these different intricacies about how each car that they steal has some kind of either security mechanism that they have to override. It's not just your standard, here's how I'm going to jack a car. And I think that's great. I think it takes a lot of clever creativity and thinking to kind of say, okay, how, how would you steal this? How would you steal this type of car? You know, you have this like 50s T-Bird. How would you steal that? And I think it's great. I think being able to see that doesn't make me want to steal a car. It makes me realize I would never be able to steal one because – there's so much on a particular car that I would just be like, hey, that's a nice car. I hope to have one of those at some point in my life, but I know I won't, that kind of thing. So getting to live vicariously through this crew and how they're able to do it so just unassuming. Like, it seems like, oh, yeah, I know this car. I know that car. And uh, you know, all that was just pretty fantastic. I love the moment where Memphis has to, like, put – he takes out a spare wheel. <laughs> 
He's like, here's a little trick I learned. He takes the whole freaking steering column off and puts a new wheel on the car because does it he has... do that, or does he take the or does he take the steering wheel off so that he can take the the oh. jack off? I think that's what he does. No, he didn't. My way's better. I wish he would. I, oh. I was imagining like him walking around with spare steering wheel on his belt belt loop or something. <laughs> I'm like, that's a Nicolas Cage thing to do. So that would be that would be that would be pretty good. Well, good stuff, man. And yeah, I think the soundtrack, the beats, the the way in which we just get from point A to point B through the music is pretty phenomenal. Uh, from start to finish. It's just a great opening credits. And that's the thing. My connecting point isn't the opening credits, but I love the fact that the opening credits kind of lead into what my connecting point is. And if you're good, I'll go ahead and kind of kick us in. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So we've always said that the Fast and Furious is going to be about family. And I don't know if there's another franchise that really gets that at that level with, you know, street racing and a crew and whatnot. If there is a movie that tries to kind of get at that gone in 60 seconds comes into a distant second and that's not bad because at the heart of this we have this relationship between memphis and kip and there's a series of small pockets of scenes amidst all this action and craziness and i think this is something that jerry burkheimer is pretty good at as well where you have quiet moments intersecting with the loudness so jerry burkheimer films are going to be rock and roll no doubt but you're also going to have moments like the pillow talk scene, like you mentioned, in Armageddon that are going to accent those things. And there are a couple more in Armageddon that stand out to me as like, oh, great. There's humanity at the heart of all this. And for me, the relationship between Kip and Memphis is pretty amazing. They have There are three scenes that relate to them, two of which engage them specifically. And then the third one that is actually my connecting point with Kip uh, talking to Atlee about why Memphis left. So we get backstory as the movie goes on about how you know, Memphis did leave. He gave up that life. You know, Kip is trying to kind of throw him a bone, saying, "Man, I'm grateful for what you did." And he's making him this really crappy breakfast of, I guess it's bacon and salt. I mean, that's pretty much what it is, and beer, um, and burnt toast. You know, what are you gonna do? You know, your brother's making you breakfast. You got to eat it. And then there's another piece of dialogue with them on the porch where they're just kind of thinking about the uh you know the past and how you know kip basically goes off on him and says you left man i had to form my own family and it's interesting because my connecting point is that third set of dialogue between atley and kip where atley actually fills in those gaps and kip says yeah you know tell me the story fill in the fill in the gaps for me and atley says dude he left to protect you he did not want you involved and you know look what happened you ended up becoming him and so you look at all three of those conversations, and in particular, the second conversation with, with Kip and Memphis, and you realize that Memphis had the opportunity to say, you know what, I left because of you. I left to protect you. And yet he let Kip sort of live his in his own world. He let Kip have that anger because I think, honestly, Aaron, I think Memphis respected that. I think he said, you know what, you deserve to be angry. I left. And yes, I left for good reasons, but you're still my brother. I still love you. And leaving your brother for whatever reasons, bad or good, you're still leaving. And so getting that conversation with Atlee, helping us fill in those gaps, it didn't necessarily give me more sympathy for Memphis. I already had that because, you know, it's Memphis Reigns. But I think it started that resolution that eventually led to <laughs> Kip buying him a car. <laughs> and I loved it. Again, in that in that little intimate moment. He looks at Kip and he says, you didn't – and he goes, no, 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 I, no, I bought – it was legit. I bought it for you. I didn't steal it. 
And there's that hug at the end. So I listed that particular conversation as my connecting point, but it's really those pockets of conversations between Kip and Memphis and that conversation with Atley that really do connect me to the movie because that's, that's the through line for me. Yes, it's Eleanor. Yes, it's his relationship with Sway, but really it starts and finishes with him and Kip. And anytime you're going to give me family and cars, I'm going to be a sucker for that. So spot on, 100% in agreement. And it's not a single moment for me either. And it sounds like it's very much the same for you where you may have called it that last scene, but really it's it's the theme. And for me, it's that theme as well, because it does. It takes this and it makes it more than just a heist film. It's more than just an action movie. It's family. It matters. It's people who care about each other. And it's, it's non-traditional family as well as blood family. And so that moment is that culmination, like you said, combined with, you know, it is, it's a series though. It's a series of moments. And, and I actually wrote them all down too, just like you did. Like those, those are the paths where he gets to meet him and you get to see how Kip's living. And you're like, wow, this kid really is a wreck without me. Like he gets to understand this is, he has no idea, right? He has no clue what it's been like. The conversation with his mom is another part of that in the diner where she's like, talking to him about how Kip got into this stuff. And, and she's like, you know, just get him out. Just do what you got to do. Just get him, get him out of there. And you understand like how close his family is. Like they care about each other and they want to take care of each other. He's been, we learned that he's been sending them money, right? Like, so he's trying to take care of his family when he went straight. And it is the thing that makes this whole thing special is having a family member who is driven to protect another one and put whatever it is on the line. And what elevates that for me with is the crew joining in Memphis's crew is not just doing this for the money. Like Sway says, when she shows up to the garage, she's like, no questions. I'm here for Kip. Dude, they're there because they both care about Kip but because they care about Memphis because yeah. Memphis is their, it's fan, it's fast and furious. He's their Dominic Toretto. He, he is their Dominic Toretto in this movie. And that's exact. And it's fascinating to me because I never had made these parallels. Obviously we weren't the fast and furious fans that we are now back in the year 2000 when this came out and we were rewatching it all the time. But now having seen the other films and how, where it went, we can see the similarities and it's just crazy because they came out the same year. <laughs> that's wild. Um, and it's, I think it was, I think it was 2000. might've been 2001 for Fast and Furious. Yeah, I think it, was it, was 2000. 2000, it was 2001. But okay, so enough. this came out first. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, but it's, they're so similar with that. And, and I think that that connection and the way that it ends, like you said, it ends with that theme, with the barbecue and then him giving Memphis that 67 Shelby Mustang GT500 that is complete trash. <laughs> but it's not trash because of what it is. It doesn't matter what it looks like. He's just as excited. And the fact that he didn't steal it, right? The fact that he bought it with his own money is how, just like real life, like how meaningful a gift is when you give someone a present that wasn't on their Amazon wish list that they sent you, but it was something that you knew that they wanted because of you thought about them, because you knew who they were as a person and what was important to them. And it just seals the whole thing. And it's kind of, it's an interesting thing because it makes me simultaneously consider, man, how awesome would it have been to see like a whole run of this series? Like, you know, with more with this crew, it would have been a lot of fun, 
but it also makes me really glad that, that didn't happen because I have Fast and the Furious for that, and I like ultimately that this is self-contained. One story, yeah. one group of characters in one movie that didn't go off the rails and change. Yeah. It was just this, you know, and it yeah. works. Yeah, I, I look at this movie and I think this feels if we're going to use like to use an SAT analogy, which SATs are analogy, you know, in the in part of their section, I think of this as this is the Fast and the Furious what the American president was to the West Wing. I feel like the things that we love about this movie are the reasons that we love the Furious franchise. Family, fast cars, crazy stunts, big action, fun dialogue, great characters, crew ups, all this different stuff. And I agree with you. If we had gotten this and then we'd gotten the Fast and the Furious and we started having these sort of unintentional competing franchises, I don't know that we would have loved either one as much as we do if we'd had that. I love the completion of this because here's the thing. You could poke holes in this movie all day. I mean, what does Memphis do in order to be able to have $10,000 to give to Kalitri to pay off the debt? What's that? He saves. He by racing like <laughs> go karts. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, again, it's, I'm not I'm not dissing the movie at all because of that. But there are things about this movie that you you just sort of take on faith and you enjoy because you love the movie. And that's that's what I want to leave it as. Like this is a great movie to revisit to experience it as a whole. I watch the Fast and the Furious so that I can watch. Tokyo Drift or so that I can watch Fast Five or so that I can watch Furious Seven. You know, I watch these movies so that I can anticipate their sequels. I watch this because I want to live in the world where Memphis Reigns is stealing fifty nine or fifty cars in one night and trying to get his brother from being from keep his brother from being killed. And those kinds of expectations make these movies great for me because I don't expect any more than I got from Gone in Sixty Seconds. And I don't want any more. So it's a great way to start, experience, and finish it. And I think that's why it's great. Well, that wraps up this episode of Feeling Film. We had so much fun talking about this one. And we hope that you had fun listening. And uh, we want to say feel free to share your thoughts in our Facebook group and uh, get some great engagement there. Aaron, thank you for another great conversation, my friend. And we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.